0: Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show. And the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell.
1: Hello. Uh,
0: so I did want to address a few things regarding our last show, the uh, Halloween Party show. And so
1: did I. I mean, not to interrupt, but. Go ahead. Well, it's just very upsetting to me to hear that certain listeners believed there was an actual owl, Mr. Ridenhauer's pet owl Strix, in the owl salad. That is the last thing I would ever do. It's just, it, it's barbaric. And if that's what you think, then maybe, uh, okay. maybe. Well, I,
0: remember what we agreed.
1: And it was not poison. We're not doing this. Should we start again?
0: No, but we did agree. I know. There. Were some irregularities with the last show, which Mrs. Carswell and I have discussed between ourselves. But the uh, bottom line is we're we're both okay. No one was hurt, and we've worked out some agreements, and we're ready to move forward. And
1: it's been a week since I wore any owl makeup.
0: Good. The, The point is we're looking forward now. This episode is a new start, or a return, really, to our... Old show format.
1: Mr. Reidenauer finished his book!
0: Right before Halloween. Yes, I did. Uh, So I have time again to research those deep dive episodes. Those of you who have been listening for more than a year would remember. December may be a bit of an exception, as I'm hoping we'll have two episodes, including a ghost story for Christmas. But the plan is to return to our old format with one longer episode instead of two short ones.
1: You're not going to say anything more about the book?
0: Not till it's ready for pre-order, which won't be until next year. Okay. So, um, unless you had anything else, I think we're ready to begin our episode. Well, it's
1: eight days, actually. What? What? More than a week, I realize. You could count this as eight days because it's already night time. And the eyebrow pencil doesn't count. I just noticed the little eyebrow pencil looks good, so I kept using it.
0: Your eyebrows. You...
1: I made them darker. Not owl light. It's, it's fine. Not arched. Okay. Or wider.
0: We're good. Uh, we, we're ready to start what will be episode 122... The Monster of Glams I am your host, Al Ridenauer and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book. The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and have recently finished the manuscript for a related volume. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who choose from a tantalizing array of monthly rewards, including shirts, mugs, dusty old things from the library shelves here, and access to monthly bonus episodes. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show.
1: which I see before me, the handle toward my hand. Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-depressive brain?
0: It is, in fact, a dagger of the mind. At first, at least, it's a vision of a dagger that draws Macbeth to pull an actual blade from his belt and kill King Duncan while he sleeps. It's the deed that sets all the tragedy spiraling forward. The scene you're hearing is from Roman Polanski's excellent 1971 cinematic adaptation, one full of blood and horrors, a vivid decapitation, a nude sleepwalking Lady Macbeth, and uh, other shocking scenes which almost earned the production an X rating. So one censor in a rather low personal blow dubbed...
1: Classic horror comic stuff, which reeks of the Sharon Tate shambles.
0: And I would highly recommend it.
1: Hail Macbeth! Hail Macbeth! Hail King of Scotland!
0: Clum's Castle, yes, the I is pronounced actually, is in eastern Scotland, about a 20-minute drive north from Dundee, and was supposed to have been the home of Macbeth. In fact, he's hailed as
1: Thane of Glams
0: by the witches he encounters at the play's beginning, Uh, Thane uh, being a Scottish term for a feudal lord. Macbeth, however, is not the monster of Glams, though we're going to get to that in a moment different sites within the castle are pointed out as the presumed location of Macbeth's murder of King Duncan. The armory is a favorite choice, uh, perhaps because a sword and shirt of mail said to belong to Macbeth are displayed there, which might have you wondering about the actual historical figure, Macbeth. His full name in medieval Gaelic, I won't even attempt, but it's uh, anglicized as Macbeth McFinley, and his uh, biography only provides the loosest inspiration for Shakespeare's play. The death of King Duncan for instance occurred not in Glam's Castle actually and not while the victim slept but on the battlefield in a skirmish against Macbeth's army and this was in the year 1040 and one reason we know that it didn't occur in the castle was that the uh, castle wasn't built till 1372 and it was again rebuilt in the 16th century with further modifications over the next two centuries. But As to the monster itself, or himself, it's a slow evolution, different threads of folklore and fact coming together in recent centuries. We'll explore that process, but to jump ahead a bit and let you know its final form, here is a summary from a 1908 edition of the British scholarly journal, Notes and Queries,
1: The story was, and is, that in the castle of Gloms is a secret chamber. In this chamber is confined a monster, who is the rightful heir to the title and property, but who is so unpresentable that it is necessary to keep him out of sight and out of possession.
0: Other unkind names, including...
1: The Horror of Gloms...
0: Are sometimes used to describe this unfortunate figure. Thomas Lyon Bowes, heir slated to become the 11th Earl of Strathmore, officially only existed for a matter of hours and is listed in the Peerage of Scotland as
1: Born and Died, October 21, 1821.
0: But there are reasons to believe this may not have been true. This possibility and the location within the castle of his purported hideaway was a matter of intense speculation throughout the Victorian era. The Lion-Bowes family, later changed to a lion, was associated with the site since its construction in 1372 when Robert the Bruce made a gift to the family of the land, making it presumably the oldest inhabited castle in Scotland. The lord of the castle was created Baron in the 15th century with the title of Earl of Kinghorn and Strathmore added in the next century. The late Queen Elizabeth spent much of her childhood in the castle, as it was and the ancestral home of the Queen Mother, Elizabeth Angela Margarita Bowes-Lyon. This connection led to a greater scrutiny of the Bowes-Lyon line, which included some interesting revelations, which we'll discuss later. The association with Macbeth isn't really related to the Monster of Glums, except in that it provides that bit of gloomy stage dressing for our main story. The Legend of the Secret Chamber first appears not as a residence of a disfigured aristocrat, but as the eternal prison of a damned soul, namely that of a mythically wicked Earl who displays a particular addiction to gambling. The room's location, however, is impossible to pinpoint, marked only by the sounds of a ghostly card game emanating from the walls. It's a place either supernaturally concealed or hidden between this realm and the next. The Earl in question is usually identified with the 15th century personage, Alexander Lindsay, Earl of Strathmore, and is known in castle lore as the Mad or Wild Earl and uh, less understandably as Earl Patey, or the Tiger Earl, or most commonly, Earl Beardy. The earliest printed version of the legend, provided in William Howitt's uh, 1847 Journal of Literature and Popular Progress, describes the Earl engaged in a frenzied night of gambling and... As he
1: was losing dreadfully, swore an oath that he would play till the Day of Judgment whereupon the Devil suddenly made his appearance and a sudden disappearance with Old Beardy and all his company. The room has never been found again, but the people believe firmly that Old Beardy and his company are playing on and will play till the Day of Judgment and that on stormy nights the players are heard stamping and swearing in their rage over their play.
0: An 1875 version from James Cargill Guthrie in his The Vale of Strathmore, Its Scenes and Legends is uh, more melodramatic and has the Earl and his fellow gamblers so frenzied with drink and greed that they rather gratuitously damn themselves.
1: With fiendish glee they defiantly gnashed their teeth and cursed the God of Heaven. Then, with returning strength and exhausting its last and fitful energies, still louder imprecations and more fearful yells, they deliberately and with unanimous voice consigned their guilty souls to the nethermost hell. Fatal words. In a bright, broad street of lurid and sulphurous flame, the Prince of Darkness appeared.
0: An 1881 edition of Charles Dickens magazine, All the Year Round, more modestly suggests that the haunting is due to a fight at the gaming table. Finding himself hopelessly in the hole, the Earl accuses another at the table of cheating and, in turn, is run through with a rapier. Presumably, he would be continuing his ghostly gambling in hopes of recouping his losses. There are also versions placing the events on Sunday, emphasizing that the game is forbidden on the Lord's Day. In these, the Earl is frustrated and attempts to find a playing partner, as those he asks are all a bit too pious. At his wit's end, he cries out that if no one else will indulge him, he would happily play with the devil himself. So, a mysterious stranger shows up shortly thereafter, and of course, he's eager for a game and just as eager to condemn Earl Beardy in ghostly form to repeat his Sabbath game every week into eternity. The Earl Beardy legends are quite possibly a later dramatization of uh, earlier stories about a hidden chamber in Clums Castle. In the 1840s, tales circulated of a clan feud between the Oglavies and Lindsays, in which a number of the former seek refuge in Glom's castle and are hidden in an out-of-the-way room. Being not quite the ally the refugees presumed him to be, the Lord of Glom's locks the door from the outside and leaves the Lindsays to starve. Quite some time later, the Earl of Strathmore, knowing nothing of this history, orders the curiously locked room opened, and is appalled to find it full of skeletons, quite unpleasantly disposed, as...
1: Some had apparently died in the act of gnawing the flesh off their own arms.
0: So it says in a 1912 account provided in the English Illustrated magazine, And thinking, uh, well, out of sight, out of mind, he resolves his uh, disgraceful skeletons in the closet situation by summoning masons to seal over the door and the room itself leaving just a smooth stone wall. Now, as for the disfigured offspring said to occupy the secret room of Glom's, rumors began to circulate immediately after his birth. The announcement put out that the child had died on the same day he was born did not sit well with the midwife who delivered the child and left him in apparent good health. Though she's not known to have described the infant as disfigured, her public incredulity regarding the child's death led others to speculate that the child was not dead but was to be hidden from public life thanks to some sort of physical or mental abnormality. While rumors of this sort may have been percolating here or there, Walter Scott makes no mention of them. when. Writing of his visit to Gloms roughly a decade later in 1830, instead he mentions the gloomy atmosphere associated with the place, thanks to Macbeth, and comments on it as he describes being left alone by his host in one of the bedrooms.
1: I must own, as I heard door after door shut, after my conductor had retired, I began to consider myself as too far from the living and somewhat too near to the dead.
0: So, it was in the 1840s and 50s, that stories about a secret room began to appear, some of them associating it with that space to which Earl Birdie had been supernaturally confined, and others proposing that real room filled with skeletons of the Lindsay clan. The latter, a physical room, however, came to dominate the castle lore. An early account discussing a physical room has to do with an event that supposedly transpired in 1850. It was related to British diplomat Horace Rumbold during his visit to the castle in 1877. And by 1904 the account was circulating in British newspapers. It's regarding an attempt to locate this hidden room led by the wife of the 12th Earl. On a weekend during which her husband was away, the countess and her guests fell into a heated discussion of the mysterious chamber, a topic on which the earl stubbornly refused to enlighten his wife. And according to a 1904 Manchester paper, quoting Rumbold,
1: Somebody hit upon the ingenious device of opening the windows all over the castle and hanging out of each of them a sheet or towel or pocket handkerchief. Soon, innumerable white signals were fluttering in the summer breeze when Lord Strathmore unexpectedly returned.
0: The results of this experiment, when viewed from outside the walls, were not recorded in this account but have variously passed into history. It was either a single window in the tower left unflagged or, according to others, there were four windows. If by this point you're wondering how a resident of the castle could possibly be unaware of one of its rooms, it's worth mentioning that in some of the older parts of the structure the walls are up to 15 feet thick offering plenty of space to accommodate hidden chambers and secret passages. A further story of the day, echoing that of the Lindsay sealed into a castle room, suggests something similar as an ongoing phenomenon. It first appeared in All the Year Round in an edition published in 1880, but uh, recounted an experience supposedly transpiring in 1870. It originates with Virginia Gabriel, an English singer, composer, and socialite, was quite popular in her day and you're hearing a bit of her music now During her extended stay at Glamis Castle a casual comment made to her hosts was supposed to have solicited a mysteriously ominous response
1: In the morning she appeared at the breakfast table quite cheerful and self-possessed to the inquiry how she had slept she replied well thanks very well up to four o'clock in the morning but your scottish carpenters seemed to come to work very early i suppose they put up their scaffolding quickly though for they're quiet now This speech produced a dead silence, and the speaker saw with astonishment that the faces of members of the family were very pale. She was asked, as she valued the friendship of all there, never to speak to them on that subject again. There had been no carpenters at Glam's castle for months past.
0: Alongside this all-the-year-round passage, there are other tales attributed to Gabriel, the sources of which are harder to pin down. According to one of these, the house steward, Andrew Ralston, made known during her stay that he would never overnight in the castle. This was dramatically demonstrated when a heavy snow fell, blanketing the roads leading in and out of the property with several feet of snow. So the Earl pleaded with Ralston to pass the night in one of the many unused rooms. Ralston adamantly refused, and instead all the servants who had already retired for the evening were roused from their sleep and marshalled into an effort to tunnel through the drifts, digging out a path to Ralston's home, which was no less than a mile distant. Also according to another one of these accounts attributed to Gabriel, while the countess was not privy to the secrets of the hidden chamber, the information had been revealed to Ralston, a situation which greatly frustrated the Countess. After enduring her persistent and desperate request to disclose the secret, Ralston was said to have sternly addressed her thus.
1: Lady Strathmore, it is fortunate that you do not know it and can never know it, for if you did, you would not be a happy woman.
0: From... Gabriel's story of the nocturnal workman's noises has been inferred that the chamber was intermittently opened and resealed, and something similar was reiterated four years later in John Henry Ingram's 1884 volume, The Haunted Homes and Family Traditions of Great Britain. It mentions the curious treatment of a stonemason who's discharged from his services at the estate.
1: Having discovered or been suspected of discovering more than he should have, was supplied with a handsome competency upon the conditions that he immigrated and preserved inviolable secrecy as to what he had learned.
0: In... 1904, the New York Sun also ran a story, likewise implicating stonemasons.
1: On one occasion, a young doctor who was staying in the castle professionally found on returning to his bedroom that the carpet had been taken up and relaid. He noted that the mark of the carpet was different at one end of the room. By moving the furniture and raising the carpet, He laid bare a trap door which he forced open and found himself in a passage. The passage ended in a cement wall. The cement was still soft, leaving the impress of a finger. He returned to his room and next morning received a check for his services with the intimation that the carriage was ready to take him to the station for the first train.
0: According to Glam's lore, the frustration of the Countess of the Twelfth Earl would have been experienced by all the wives taken into the family as secrets were only disclosed to male heirs, with certain exceptions made of necessity, the house steward and, of course, stonemasons when needed. The mystery wasn't even to be brought up by other members of the household. Rose Leveson Gower, Countess Granville, the aunt of Elizabeth II, recalled this in the 1967 biography, The Queen Mother's Story, by James Wentworth Day.
1: We were never allowed to talk about it when we were children. Our parents forbade us ever to discuss the matter or ask any questions about it. My father and grandfather refused absolutely to discuss it.
0: A sort of ritual is supposed to have developed around the passing of the revelation from father to son, as mentioned in the haunted homes and family traditions of Great Britain.
1: On the night before he attains his 21st birthday, the heir, who bears the courtesy title of Lord Glams, is solemnly initiated in the terrible mystery by the reigning earl and his factor.
0: Factor here is the Scottish term for house steward. And it's assumed this initiation involved leading the uh, trembling heir through whatever concealed passages had been opened for the occasion, down the dripping stone corridors to an encounter with whatever lay within. Claude Bowes-Lyon, the 14th Earl and maternal grandfather to Elizabeth II, appeared to ...struggle under the weight of this secret, according to society writer August Hare, who saw him bearing...
1: ...an ever-sad look.
0: In Wentworth Day's biography, the 13th Earl is said to have grimly answered some busybody's query...
1: ...if you could even guess the nature of this castle's secret, you would get down on your knees and thank God it was not yours.
0: And the diplomat, uh, Horace Rumbold, who provided our towels in the window story... Reflected on the apparent burden borne by the 13th Earl, relating that his son, having likewise noticed this effect on his father, wished to beg out of the ritual on his upcoming 21st birthday, pleading,
1: that his immediate initiation not being indispensable, he preferred to wait until it should become so.
0: Now, I'm sure you're wondering what kind of being was supposed to have been detained in this mystery room. He wouldn't be alone. From the 1880s through the turn of the century, all of Britain was asking that same question, while the sight of the room's occupant was denied to all but a handful, noises he made could be heard by all. According to a 1912 edition of the English Illustrated Magazine,
1: strange, weird, and unearthly sounds had often been heard by many persons, even those quite unacquainted with the ill repute of the castle.
0: A startling description of the occupant's physical appearance is offered in an August 1883 edition of the Daily Telegraph.
1: He stood eight feet in height. His head and the upper part of his body resembled that of a toad. His skin was marked with black and white splotches, and his hands were webbed. He could not speak or hear, but his eyes were bright but wild. He never showed signs of reason.
0: The article claimed that he had died the previous year at the age of 92, one of the many articles suggesting that the mystery was, in fact, at an end, but it was the only one offering such a vividly audacious description of the room's occupant. The idea of a toad-like prisoner at Gloms was so outrageous and absurd that it stuck in the public consciousness and was seized upon and further elaborated. By 1931, an edition of the Omaha Sunday Bee News, probably recirculating in a British story, uh, claimed that...
1: Once in a century as a punishment for some past sin, the oldest son of the family is born a monster of toad-like form and is kept in the secret chamber until he dies.
0: A 1939 edition of the San Francisco Examiner took the ball and ran with it.
1: Legend says that the monster is toad-like in form, with terrible claws and very dangerous to encounter. Some say that it lives for a hundred years when another monster is born again in fulfillment of a curse. One writer says that the entrance to the monster's chamber is through a secret door in the wine cellar. And
0: from there, the article proceeds to spin out a story in which the Earl leaves a banquet to retrieve from the wine cellar a special bottle of claret, apparently making a wrong turn along the way and bumping into the toad man. His guests are shocked at his appearance when he returns.
1: His clothes were torn, his face was bloody, and he showed every sign of having been in a violent struggle with somebody or something.
0: At this late date in the story's evolution, Scottish legends seem to have been merging with the horrors of pulp magazines. In fact, the Glom's myth was already being colorfully embroidered by 1884, as detailed again in The Haunted Homes and Family Traditions of Great Britain.
1: Another wild suggestion is that owing to some hereditary curse, like those believed to rest on many well-known families, at certain intervals a kind of vampire is born into the family of the Strathmore Lions. It is scarcely possible to destroy this monstrosity. It is therefore kept concealed till its term of life is run. But, it might be remembered, even monsters need nourishment and this secret chamber at Globs is only visited once in a generation.
0: The idea that the room's occupant was extremely long lived surviving generations or even centuries, remained a fringe element of the lore for some time, as did the suggestion that it was somehow vampiric. The most objective, or at least objective-sounding, description of this mysterious figure appears... In the previously mentioned uh, 1967 biography of the Queen Mother, the author's interviews with the Earl of the Time and other members of the bowes Lion family produced this description.
1: He was a creature fearful to behold. It was impossible to allow this deformed creature of humanity to be seen, even by their friends. His chest an enormous barrel, hairy as a doormat. His head ran straight into his shoulders, and his arms and legs were toy-like.
0: I suppose that sounds fairly toad-like, a hairy toad, at least. I mentioned earlier reports of the presumed death of the heir of Gloms. In fact, the Only official death announcement ever made was the one occurring two days after the supposed death of the infant, but it was widely expected that upon the death of the adult heir, the whole mystery would eventually be revealed. Even from the late 1800s, the public was becoming frustrated at all this secrecy, and they wanted to know if a toad man did indeed live in that secret chamber or whatever secret the family was willing to reveal. Charles Dickens complained of it.
1: There is generally much talk of the old story being exploded at last. Gay gallants in lace ruffles, bows, bucks, bloods, and dandies have, until their 21st birthday, made light of the family mystery, and some have gone so far as to make after-dinner promises to tell the whole stupid story in the smoking room at night. This promise has been made more than once. It has been pledged in burgundy and Tokay, in lafite and champagne, in steaming toddy and in cooling lemon squash. But it has never been kept.
0: And so, getting fed up with the mystery, a writer for the New York Times in 1882 announced his belief that the heir had
1: died a week or two ago at a very advanced age.
0: And again, the New York Times, 22 years later, in 1904, uh, that the...
1: Necessity of keeping secret and secluded one or more chambers no longer exists.
0: By the time Wentworth Day interviewed the 16th Earl for his 1967 book, the dreadful burden of the family secret was no longer carried. The Earl declared that he knew...
1: Not a thing. It may have died with my father or with my brother, who was killed in the war...
0: And if there was a being at the time, it certainly wasn't being fed, which is an alarming prospect in itself. While I've been largely discussing the monster of Gloms as an evolving bit of folklore, one could make the case that there's more to it than that. Apart from this mythic room, there have been documented discoveries of previously hidden features within the castle. The 1912 article I cited earlier from the English Illustrated, for instance, relates that,
1: Not many years ago, a splendid old fireplace, whose existence had been previously unknown, was accidentally discovered in the drawing room. And on another occasion, when some alterations were in progress, a secret staircase was revealed.
0: And a 17th century diary kept by the third Earl of Strathmore, Patrick Lyon, mentions
1: A closet designed within the Charter Room.
0: Or a small chamber accessed from the Charter Room. The construction of which necessitated...
1: Considerable trouble as the digging through passages from the new work to the old.
0: And uh, lest you still insist that secret rooms are just some device of gothic fiction, I would point you to a 1901 volume which I found myself getting lost in as I prepared the show. It has the charming title...
1: Secret Chambers and Hiding Places historic, romantic, and legendary stories and traditions about hiding holes, secret chambers, etc.
0: The most common use of such rooms is providing hiding places for Catholic clergy, giving them the name priest holes. Priest hunters designated by the crown were dispatched to a state suspected of Catholic sympathies and would often bring with them carpenters and stonemasons with a special eye for suspicious handiwork, possibly signifying a hidden chamber. These chambers were often built adjacent to a fireplace in order to share a chimney so that the smoke sent up by the fires by which the occupant warned himself wouldn't betray his location. T. F. Thistleton Dyer in his 1895 volume, Strange Pages from Family Papers, mentions a particularly impressive and geniusly concealed room in an estate near the English village of Plumpton.
1: Behind the great chimney piece of the hall was a deep recess used for purposes of concealment. And it is said that one day a cavalier horseman, hotly pursued by some troopers, charged into the hall, spurred his horse into the recess, and disappeared forever.
0: In Scotland, such rooms were also used to hide members of the Jacobite Risings of the 18th century. And examples can be found in the castles of 5 Elfenstone, Elphinstone, and Kemne House, all of which have their own secret chambers. So while the existence of a hidden room in Glam's castle would not be out of line with what can be found elsewhere in Britain, other factors that seem to support the idea that an heir might be hidden within it, something often mentioned is that there's no marked grave for the newborn Thomas Lyon Bowes, who was said to have died on the day he was born, Given the high rates of infant mortality in the day, however, funeral customs would not necessarily have demanded this, but this absence certainly does nothing to quell the rumors. More significant really, is the fact that two other members of the Bose Lion family were actually hidden away shortly after World War I, not in a stone chamber, but a psychiatric hospital. Sisters Narissa Bowes-Lyon, born in 1919, and Catherine, born in 1926, were both severely disabled and never learned to speak, and they were both placed in Royal Earlswood Hospital in 1941. And this hardly seems to be strictly a matter of a practical necessity or better care, as all connections with the family seem to have ended precisely at this point. There are no records of the Bowes Lyon family providing anything beyond the monthly payments and no record of visits or even communication with the girls. And an intentional erasure of their existence is further suggested in the listing for the sisters in Burke's Peerage, the definitive source of genealogy for Britain's titled nobility since 1826. It listed Nerissa and Catherine as having died in 1940. 1961, respectively, when in fact they died in 1986 and 2014. All of this went generally unnoticed until 1987, when the sun broke the story with the headline,
1: Queen's Cousin Locked in Madhouse.
0: And this unpleasant story periodically resurfaces, as in 2011 with the Channel 4 documentary, The Queen's Hidden Cousins, and more recently was brought up in a 2020 episode of Netflix's series, The Crown. Buckingham Palace won't comment on it, referring queries to the Bowes-Lyon family. Whether or not all this real-world skullduggery really supports the claims about the rightful heir of Globs and the Chamber the legend would inevitably thrive thanks to its mythic or literary power. The trope of the monstrous child hidden by the father is as old as the story of King Minus Minos and the Minotaur. Produced by a coupling of the king's wife and the beast, the half-man, half-bull offspring was confined in a maze built by Daedalus to spare the king from the sort of shame feared by the Bose lion family and the Glom's story conformed nicely to themes that were presented in Gothic literature of the day. The old castle, corrupted or degenerate aristocracy, ancestral curses, and secrets. Pivotal to the plot of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, published in 1847, just as the Glom's myth was taking shape, is the madwoman Bertha, who is hidden in the attic of Thornfield Manor, which is the estate of Edward Rochester, where Jane is hired as a tutor. As Rochester's wife had been so thoroughly hidden that Jane allows herself to fall in love with her employer. And this same trope was pervasive also in less elevated literature and the Penny Dreadfuls, and eventually migrated to the Pulps and was frequently embraced by, among others, H.B. Lovecraft, for instance. In The Color Out of Space, he presents a monstrously transforming wife who is locked away in the attic after her cosmic encounter. This same trope was picked up in films, naturally. Too many to really list, though I'll mention James Whale's 1932 film, The Old Dark House, uh, just because it's a favorite. And it has two hidden figures, a lunatic pyromaniac locked in one room and a wispy 102-year-old patriarch hidden in the attic. The film is something of a black comedy, as is the example with which we'll close 1967's Spider Baby.
1: Now, Spider is very clever. She very cleverly Drains
0: the vital juices from the bug's body. It's a delightful film, known primarily as a late career vehicle for Lon Chaney Jr., who plays a chauffeur for a wealthy family on the decline, uh, both uh, financially but also biologically. As all family members are afflicted with something called the Mary Syndrome, which causes age regression in those afflicted, the three orphan children, that is, for whom Cheney acts as caretaker. There are two women who behave like 10-year-olds, one who likes to play Spider.
1: I guess I have to sting you now.
0: And a brother who's regressed further to a pre-speech stage, and he's played by Sid Haig, the actor now better known for portraying uh, Captain Spaulding in the Rob Zombie films. But it doesn't stop with that sort of regression. Reverting to a pre-human condition
1: of savagery... And cannibalism.
0: And this would be where our trope comes in Uh, Aunt Martha, Aunt Sarah, and Uncle Ned, who remain locked in the basement or under the floorboards, actually, for most of the film, remaining unseen as the remains of the children's victims are fed to them. They are cannibalistic, of course. then emerging only at the film's climax to reveal their stunningly shoddy creature makeup. It's bad makeup, but a fun song with which we'll end, and it's sung by Lon Chaney Jr. himself.
1: Screams <laughs> <laughs> and bones and bats and bones and teenage monsters and haunted homes. A ghost on the stair, a vampire's fight, everywhere. beware, <laughs> there's a full moon.
0: I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. It uh, very much helps the visibility of the program and that helps gain subscribers, which helps gain patrons, which means these shows can keep coming out. Go to patreon.com and search for our name if you want to help with that. Among the many reward tiers available, a monthly pledge of $2 provides you immediate access to hundreds of show blog posts in which I share curious tidbits from history folklore and uh, horror films related to the uh, general subject matter here donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you an extra episode each month somewhat shorter than the public shows but still lavishly and melodramatically soundscaped other rewards include downloads of those show soundscapes what's heard under the narration the show scripts my Krampus book various t-shirt and mug options and unique and hand-packed mystery kits Pledges start at $1 a month and can be cancelled at any time. And here are some of those heroes who have recently signed up and to whom we are very grateful. Thank yous to Nathan Lambert, Heather Glenn, Mary Lou Ackert, Ruben Wright, and Orlando Sabe. Bo Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenour. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.